All right, we are continuing to study the subject of the biblical covenants, and uh, we have said that covenants are simply oath-sworn promises that God makes to his people which define the nature of his relationship with them. And so uh, covenants define relationships. We enter into, for example, marriage covenants, and in those covenants we make uh, sworn promises to our spouse that we will have a certain type of relationship with them based on certain terms. We say that we will um, stay with them for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health, to death do us part. And we say to them, we will uh, be sexually faithful to them. We will keep ourselves only unto them. And thus the uh, promise of cohabitation and sexual fidelity uh, define the nature of our relationship with that person. And so that's a marriage covenant. We have a national covenant, it's called our constitution. And the constitution defines the nature of the relationship that we have with our fellow citizens. Um, and so in the same way, God is a covenant making and a covenant keeping God. And God is the God who initiates covenants. And through those covenants, he defines uh, who his people are and how he's going to relate to them. And we have said that there are five major covenants in the scripture. There is the Noahic covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There is the old covenant. And there is the Davidic covenant. And then of course, there's the new covenant. And so these five covenants form the uh, skeleton, if you will, upon which all of biblical revelation hangs. Just as your skeleton is the central organizing principle of your body, and on it, everything else hangs, and by it, everything else is organized. In the same way, God has placed covenants in the Bible, these five covenants, and they are the central organizing principle of all of biblical revelation. And when we understand the covenants, we understand the structure of the various books and the various passages in the books, what they mean, and how we relate to them or do not relate to them uh, based upon uh, who is, is being addressed. So uh, we have looked at previously the Noahic covenant, the Abraham, pardon me, the Abrahamic covenant and the old covenant. And we're now looking at the Davidic covenant. And we have seen that the covenant that God made with David uh, was made with him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in that covenant, God promised David three things. Number one, he would always have a descendant to sit on his throne, and that would be forever and ever. And number two, that um, uh, his descendant uh, who sat on that throne would be the son of God in a unique and special way. And then number three, that that son would build him a house. And we saw that this was uh, partially fulfilled in the person of Solomon. Solomon, of course, sat on David's throne as David's descendant. Solomon was, in a special way, the son of God, in that he was given more wisdom from God than anyone who ever lived before him or after him. He had a unique and special relationship with God that uh, others did not have in terms of the degree of blessing he enjoyed and the degree of wisdom that was imparted to him. And then, of course, Solomon built God the house, the temple, right? But a greater than Solomon has come. And uh, the New Testament speaks of Jesus as being, um, you know, the greater than Solomon. And um, 
So uh, Jesus, of course, is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He is the son of David uh, through Mary, um, and uh, he sits on the throne of David. He, of course, is the son of God in a special and unique sense, and he is building God a house, namely the new covenant temple, which is the church. And so we have seen how Jesus has been fulfilling uh, all of these promises made to uh, David regarding the um, covenant that God made with him. Now, the fact that Jesus is the son of David ruling over the kingdom of David is what gives the New Testament its profound emphasis on the subject of the kingdom of God. If you have a king, and if, if, if Jesus is, is the son of David, and he's um, sitting on David's throne as a king, then it stands to reason he's got to have a kingdom over which to rule. And so the Bible speaks extensively about the subject of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. Those terms are synonyms and used interchangeably in the scriptures. And the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is just simply the realm over which the king rules. And so we see in Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33, that when the angel appeared to Mary, the angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. You remember that was one of the promises of the Davidic covenant is that David's son would be in a unique sense, the son of God. So he shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God <clears throat> shall give unto him the throne of his father, David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There shall be no end. And so the angel declared that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic promise and the Davidic covenant. And so this king was born, and you remember when the wise men came from the east, what did they say to Herod? Where is he that is born what? King of the Jews. And so this whole concept of the king and the kingdom is a gigantic theme in the New Testament. And when John the Baptist came preaching, it says, uh, in Matthew 3 and verses 1 and 2, And in those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this phrase, the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, occurs especially in the Gospel of Matthew over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, in fact, this week I read through the entire Gospel of Matthew and and marked every place where the idea of the king and the kingdom and the Davidic covenant and the son of David and all those phrases appear. And that gospel is just saturated with that. And you recall what Matthew 1.1 says, right? The generation of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, Jesus in that he's Abraham's seed. And of course, he's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in that he's David's son as well. So as a result, we have this massive teaching in the New Testament on the subject of the kingdom of God and the subject of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we said last time that this kingdom over which Jesus rules is simply the sphere of his rule. Um, 
If you have the king of England, what does he rule over? The land of England, right? That's the sphere of his rule. And so uh, the, the size of the kingdom of God is the size of the sphere over which Jesus rules. Now, we said last time that Jesus rules in general over the entire universe, okay? And so we could say the entire universe, all people uh, in the whole world um, are under the rule of Jesus Christ. As it says in John 17, 2, Jesus says to his father, you have given me power, authority over all flesh. And so Jesus rules over the world in general, but he also rules over the church in particular. And so we see that uh, it goes on to say in John 17, 2, not only has thou given me power over all flesh, why has he done so? In order that I might give eternal life to as many as thou hast given me. And so out of this all flesh, God has chosen an elect people to give to his son. Those are the ones for whom he died. And those are the ones that he is calling uh, to salvation. And those are the ones that comprise this narrower um, aspect of the kingdom of God of which we're talking. And then, of course, um, this larger kingdom, which is uh, the kingdom of the, of, of the whole world, all people without exception, uh, is being managed for the blessing of this smaller kingdom, which comprises God's own true people. And then ultimately, uh, this kingdom is going to be uh, completely purified and purged of all unsaved people. And when we go into the kingdom of God throughout all eternity, God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In the new heavens and the new earth, God's will will be done perfectly, um, as, as it, which it is not being done right now. Well, let's turn, please, in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13, and we'll pick up where we left off last time. That's a very brief review of, of a great deal of material that we've covered. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 13. <clears throat> Now, we looked at um, this parable of the uh, wheat and the tares in Matthew 13, beginning at verse 24. And I want to just briefly go over that again with you and remind you of, um, of what was said, okay? Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. Matthew 13, 24, another parable put he, that is Jesus, forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man. Notice the kingdom of heaven. Notice the phrase there. The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. A tare is like a weed, okay? But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then hath it terrors? And he said, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? And he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
Now, we may be sitting here saying, well, what does that mean? Fortunately, the disciples had the same question and they asked Jesus, what does that mean? So he explains. Notice verse 37. Uh, we'll start at verse 36. And Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto them, he that sows the good seed is the son of man. So the good seed, of course, is the gospel. It's the word of God. It's, it's the message of salvation. The field is the world, the whole, whole world with all the people in it. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares are the children of the wicked ones. So in the world, you have two categories of people. You have saved and lost. You have wheat and tares. You have good and evil. You have the children of God and the children of Satan. You're either one or the other. Verse 39, the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. So he's told us all the figures and what their meaning and significance it is. Now, in verse 40, he says, As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be in the end of the world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels. They shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, you noticed that the word kingdom was used three times in Jesus' explanation, and let's go through that. All right. So first of all, he says to them in verse 37, he answered and said to them, he that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. Now notice the good seed are the children of the kingdom. So the kingdom here is made up of the children. That is those who are saved. So we say, well, what's the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is all of those in the world who are the children of Christ. That's pretty plain, right? Now he goes on and says in verse 41, the son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity. Now here the kingdom encompasses people who offend and do iniquity. Before the kingdom was the children, the good seed. And now the kingdom is viewed as larger, including not only the good seed, but also those which, which offend and do iniquity. So here we have the larger concept of the kingdom. Now then notice verse 42. And shall cast them into a furnace of fire. That's being cast into hell. And there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Verse 43, then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. So after the second coming of Christ, after the final judgment, after people are disposed into heaven and hell, those who are in heaven are now called the kingdom. Okay, so we have then three um, different usages of the word kingdom in this one passage. First of all, the kingdom is used of the church that is in the world now. That is, all the saved people who are in the world now. Secondly, the word kingdom is used of the entire world that comprises both the saved and those who do iniquity and offend. And then thirdly, we have this eschatological kingdom, that is the kingdom that is to come, in which there will only be saved people and no unsaved people will be there. 
So <clears throat> what we have to do when we're reading our Bibles and we run across this phrase, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, we have to ask ourselves, well, what's that referring to? Sometimes it refers to the church that is in the world now. Speaking of all believers, okay, who are in the world now. Sometimes it refers to the whole world, all people without exception, both saved and unsaved, because God rules over the whole world, right? And then sometimes it's referring to a future kingdom that is not here yet, which is when uh, God will finally put down all rebellion and all the wicked will be cast into hell. And then the only people that will be in the kingdom, 100% of the people in the kingdom are, are saved. That's not true right now, is it? So there is the kingdom of the church, the kingdom of the church plus the world, and then the future eschatological kingdom that will take place or be manifested in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 13 is the chapter of kingdom parables. In fact, the whole chapter is full of them. There's seven of them there. And um, notice chapter 13, verse 31 to 33. 1331, another parable put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven, there's our phrase, kingdom of heaven, is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Verse 33, another parable spoke he unto them, the kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal to the whole was leavened. Now, both of these parables, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of the leaven, tell us that the kingdom starts out very small and it grows and it gets very big. So obviously what we can say is right now, the kingdom that Jesus came and inaugurated uh, through his birth and his life and his death and resurrection started out very small. I mean, um, he had 11 apostles, right? And then even after his um, resurrection and ascension into heaven, there was only 120 people that gathered waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 1 and 2, right? 120 people, right? Well, then Peter preaches his Pentecost Day sermon, right? And 3,000 get saved. And then he preaches a, a few days later and 5,000 get saved. And of course, the, the, the kingdom has been growing ever since. And, um, and, and so the kingdom is here now. The kingdom is growing and the way it's growing is that the kingdom of Satan is being invaded by the gospel and with the spiritual weapons of our warfare. And we are taking captives out of his kingdom and bringing them out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And so the Bible does speak of Satan having a kingdom, and that is his rule over, the sphere of his rule is over all of the unsaved. But his kingdom and his rule over the unsaved is subordinate to Jesus' larger kingdom, which also rules over the unsaved as well as the saved uh, in this present age. And so salvation means being brought into the kingdom, uh, being brought out of, of the kingdom of Satan. Now turn please, if you will, to uh, Colossians 1, verse 13. Colossians. <clears throat> Colossians 1, 
He speaks in verse 12. Uh, Paul is praying here, Colossians 1.12. He says that we are giving thanks unto the Father which has made us fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now notice, who has delivered us from the power or the authority or the kingdom, if you will, of darkness and has translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son, And how did he do so? Verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So those who are not redeemed, whose sins have not been forgiven, are those who are still in the kingdom of darkness. And and when people are, are redeemed and saved through repentance and faith, then they're translated into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So this is what we call Christ's a mediatorial kingdom. It's the kingdom that he came to establish. It's the kingdom that is growing. And the way it's growing is by God's elect being converted and saved and brought into the kingdom. And so in the last 2000 years, there have been billions and billions and billions of people brought into the kingdom and the kingdom has grown and it started out as a little bitty, tiny, itsy bitsy movement in, in, uh, in Israel And now it's worldwide. Uh, And so the leaven of the gospel has spread and the kingdom has grown. So the kingdom's here, the kingdom's growing. But there's another sense in which the kingdom isn't here yet. Right? When Jesus was here on earth, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Has that kingdom arrived yet? Not a chance. Okay? Is God's will being done on earth? As it is in heaven, not hardly. I mean, we're seeking to do it as believers, and we do it, um, you know, to the best of our ability, given our, our remaining sin. But even so, you, as Christians, we don't do the will of God on earth as it is in heaven. We're moving that direction. That's our goal. Uh, but that has yet to come. And so, uh, notice, if you will, um, Matthew, uh, pardon me, Luke chapter 22. The Gospel of Luke chapter 22. And verse 18, Jesus is instituting here the Lord's Supper, right? And uh, he's, he's given them the bread, and, and now he's given them the wine. Verse 17, Luke twenty-two seventeen, And he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And what Jesus is saying is, it isn't here yet. And yet in other places, he declared very plainly, it's here. So the question is, is it here or is it not? And the answer is, yes. Okay? The kingdom is here in its beginning germ form, but it's not here yet in its full, final, and complete form. And that was our parable of the tares and the wheat. Okay? Uh, the kingdom's here in that, it's, you know, we have the children of the kingdom uh, living right alongside the children of the devil, okay? So the kingdom's here, but uh, the, 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 the kingdom in which all things that offend have been gathered out and cast away, uh, 
and we have the eternal state after the second coming, that kingdom isn't here yet. And so that's what Jesus meant when he says, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. So this really helps us to not be confused when we understand the kingdom is here already, and yet the kingdom is not yet here. Okay, it's already, and but it's not yet. And so um, what is happening is that uh, the kingdom of God is growing. Ultimately, uh, all the tares that are, are in the larger kingdom are going to be removed away from the smaller kingdom. And then the smaller kingdom will be uh, the pure kingdom that goes on into the eternal state. Now, that's the three kingdom concept that the Bible sets forth. And when you understand that, um, we have the, the kingdom of the church, we have the kingdom of the church plus the world, and then we have the future eschatological kingdom, then all the kingdom phrases make sense when you put them into that framework. All right? Now, since Jesus is a king, and he was born a king, and he lives as a king, we would expect him to be exercising authority and rule. And in fact, he does that. Um, he rules with kingly authority over sickness, over nature, over demons, over sin, over people, and over death. Next time, we're going to look at that. And we're going to see how when he does stuff like cast out demons, people go, oh, this must be the son of David. Where would they come up with that phrase, the son of David? Well, that doesn't make a bit of sense if you don't understand that these people were looking for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And remember Psalm 89? Lord, uh, where's the king? <laughs> and God says in Isaiah, um, a son is going to be born, child's going to be given, and the government will be on his shoulder. And they were looking for him. And so when someone shows up and starts doing kingly stuff and ruling things, and things obey him, like the wind and the waves, they go, oh, king, Davidic king. And uh, he'll sit on the throne forever. And that's why the Jews were looking for a political king, because what kind of a king was David? He was a political king, right? He had a geopolitical empire, and they were expecting the same thing. And that's why after the resurrection, just before the ascension, Acts 1, 8, uh, or 7, Lord, wilt, wilt thou at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, you still don't get it. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not like the kingdoms of the world. If it were, my servants would fight. They'd get their swords out and they'd you know, do their jihad. And that's why Islam is a satanic counterfeit of the kingdom of God. So we'll talk about this next time, how Jesus rules with kingly authority and what that means to you. You should be jumping for joy that you're in the kingdom of God and you have a king and he's got power and he's ruling for your benefit. And there is no problem you have that you can't take to the king, to the throne of grace. What? A throne? A throne of grace? Who sits on thrones? Kings, right? And you can bring your petitions to him and your needs to him and he will rule with the sword of his word uh, to um, bring blessing to his people. And deliverance. So the fact that Jesus is a king is really exciting. 
And there are people who want to receive Jesus as Savior without receiving him as Lord. You're throwing away the most important part of Jesus' activity right now. Because if he's not your king, guess what? He isn't going to be ruling in your favor and exercising his power on your behalf. Because you haven't acknowledged him. You're still in rebellion. And so the idea of the carnal Christian where you can receive Jesus as Savior, but then live any old way you want in defiance of the king... Uh, is a joke. And when you live in submission to the king, then the called, the chosen, and the faithful that are with him, he defeats those who make war with them. He defeats your enemies, right? Um, so our memory verse today becomes very relevant. Now, we can get to this, but you can begin to see the kingdom of God is what? It's not meat and drink. It's not swords and bullets and bombs. It's not presidents and political action committees. It is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. So it's what Jesus does in us. It's what Jesus does for us in uh, making us like himself and defeating all of those enemies that would keep us from being able to be like himself and true citizens of the kingdom because our citizenship is where? In heaven with our king. So lots of neat stuff flows out of this. We'll talk about it next time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for <clears throat> our wonderful king and for the rule he exercises now and what that means to us. Father, what a blessing to be under the rule of the king, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. Father, we pray that we might walk uh, in submission and humility before him, trusting in him to fight our battles for us and to defeat our enemies. And Lord, we just need to be faithful. Help us to do so and to focus on uh, the kingdom uh, that Christ defines as his and to work in that kingdom and for it. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray, amen.